Hello, everyone, and welcome to the First Loved podcast. Well, I'm back, live and in person. I hope you enjoyed the sermon series. I'm grateful to Peter for editing all that so we could get it out to you in bite-sized pieces. And the main reason we did that was because for the last month plus, we have been working very diligently at finishing our First Love to Love workbook. And we're not quite done, so if you think to pray for us, we would love that, that you would partner with us in prayer, that the Lord would help us complete it. Our hope is to have it completely done by Christmas. So anyway, today's podcast. Let me remind you first of what we do at First Loved Ministries. Our mission is to partner with Jesus to train you to experience God's love more deeply and to remove barriers from receiving and sharing that love. To partner with Jesus to train you to experience God's love more deeply and to remove barriers from receiving and sharing that love. One of the practices we do to experience God's love more deeply is what we call the synonym-antonym meditation exercise. You know, meditation is so important for driving His love deep into our hearts and minds. Richard Foster writes in Celebration of Discipline, now get this, that meditation is considered by all the masters as the normal foundation for the interior life. Whereas the study of Scripture centers on exegesis, which means what the text means, the meditation of Scripture centers on internalizing and personalizing the passage. The written word becomes a living word addressed to you. Meditation, considered by all the masters as the normal foundation for the interior life. So few of us actually do it. Well, how might we define meditation? Well, to me, it's best said perhaps as pondering, processing, maybe savoring the words or images in a text. And you do that for a length of time, focused, concentrating, listening, processing, savoring, pondering. Now, sometimes a particular word doesn't really have much depth of meaning to us. But sometimes meditating on it or looking up the definition, just spending time with it, can eventually bring a greater depth and appreciation. But sometimes a word still doesn't really resonate with us. And this is why we use synonyms and antonyms, which are words that are similar or opposite of a particular word. Consider this, when scholars translate Hebrew and Greek words into English, the Old Testament being Hebrew, the New Testament Greek, they pick one word for a number of good possible English words. This is why all of our English translations are not exactly the same. For example, in one of our favorite verses, Zephaniah 3.17, this one phrase, God says, I take great delight in you, which is the NIV. But in two other translations, one says that I exult over you with joy, or another says I rejoice over you with gladness. And right there you see a variety of words to talk about God's heart for us. 
All our brains have unique filters based upon our individual experiences, education, culture, etc. In fact, Pete and I, just before doing this podcast, we were talking about the word snare. And Robin and I were working on memorizing that, and snare didn't mean anything to her. So I said, well, think of trap. Well, because Pete, a Berkeley grad and immersed in music, as soon as I said snare with his hands, he did a snare drum. (laughs) Case in point. Depending on our background, our experiences, our culture, etc., we just process words differently. Consequently, a similar word or a synonym of a specific word might have greater meaning or impact for us. For instance, let's look at the word love in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 31.3, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Or to us presently, he would say, I love you with an everlasting love. Now, the verb love, the Hebrew verb, ahav, according to the theological word book of the Old Testament, has little variation in the basic meaning. The intensity of the meaning ranges from God's infinite affection for his people to the carnal appetites of a lazy glutton. In other words, you and I can say, I love a hot dog. And you can also say, I love my wife. But I would hope that when you say I love a hot dog, it just means you like it. But when you say you love your wife, or when I say I love my wife, I'm trying to convey that I feel deep affection for her, that I hold her very dear, that I care for her so much. And again, some of these words or phrases might have more meaning for you as well than the word love. So if we put that back in Jeremiah 31.3, It impacts my heart a little more deeply when I hear the Lord say, Mark, I have infinite and deep affection for you, and it's an everlasting love for you. Now, interestingly, Paul the Apostle has a kind of synonym list for love in Colossians 3, 12 to 14. Listen, Paul says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. But now notice what he says and does with those words. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Clearly, then, everything in this list is a way of expressing love. But sometimes antonyms are the opposites, are what we are more familiar with, and therefore we better relate to and understand, and especially depending on our experience and background. Now, sometimes people say, Mark, is it legitimate to use antonyms? Well, Paul, actually, in what we often refer to as the love chapter— lists eight antonyms, eight opposites of love. And he does that for a reason. And I think the primary reason is that he's trying to correct some behaviors that some of the folks in the Corinthian church are exhibiting. And I had a feeling that Paul like sets out to define love for them by beginning with two words that he already used in the Colossian letter, right? He says, love is patient and love is kind 
And then I wonder if by the Spirit, he starts thinking about, hmm, I don't know if those are the words that are going to have most impact. And he starts thinking about the antonyms, the, the behaviors that they're doing that are not love. So, he says, you know, love is not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil. Well, even then, I, I looked up the definitions for these words. So, when he says, love doesn't envy, he's trying to say, in other words, love doesn't resent someone for having something that you want, or love doesn't begrudge another having something that you wish you had and you wish they were deprived of it. Or when he says love doesn't boast, it means that we don't call attention to ourselves so that others will think highly of us, whether deserved or not, etc., etc. Well, then what I did, though, for my own sake, for meditation, as I'm thinking about this and looking up words, is in the last antonym, he says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. So, to help me get this into me, and as I was memorizing and learning it and beginning to meditate on it, I put that but clause at the end of the other seven. So, it goes like this. Love does not envy, but is happy for another's good fortune. Love does not boast, but praises others. Love is not proud, but is humble, valuing others above ourselves. Love does not dishonor others, but honors and respects them. Love is not self-seeking, but is other-focused. Love is not easily angered, but is patient, calm, compassionate, and gracious when wronged. Love keeps no record of wrongs, but forgives as forgiven. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. So, finally, I put the two definitions and ideas in a statement. And so, I want to go through it one more time to help drive it deeper. And here's meditation. This is what we're doing right now, is meditating. Where I put it in this way. Mark, love does not envy. In other words, say to yourself, I do not resent you for having what I want. I do not begrudge you for what you have to the point of wishing you deprived of it. Instead, I am happy for your good fortune and content with what I have or do not have. To not boast, I say to myself, I do not call attention to myself so that you will think highly of me whether deserved or not. But I speak of your successes to build you up. Our love is not proud. In other words, I do not act superior to you, valuing myself above you. But in humility, I value you above myself. Love does not dishonor others. Therefore, I do not disrespect, insult, or act rudely toward you. But I honor you and respect you. Love is not self-seeking. Therefore, I am not obsessed with gratifying my own desires. But I seek to please you for your good, to build you up. Love is not easily angered. Therefore, I am not easily offended quickly feeling hostility toward you when provoked. But I am slow to anger, patient, forbearing, calm, compassionate, and gracious toward you. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Therefore, I do not harbor a grudge or 
grow vengeance in my heart when you harm me. But I forgive you as the Lord has forgiven me. And love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Therefore, I do not delight in evil. In fact, I hate injustice and oppression, falsehood and wrongdoing. Instead, I rejoice in the truth and I enjoy rejoice in what is good. See, I think Paul ultimately chose the antonyms because of their behavior. He defined love as what it was not. But you see all the work I did, both for you and for me, well, for me to begin with and now for you, I could rattle off that list, but I never really thought through what do those words actually mean? What other words would help me hear and understand and process better? I hope this has been a benefit to you. But I want to finish this way. I want to go back to Jeremiah 31, 3, and also link it up with Isaiah 54, 10. But I want to do it for you. First, the Lord says this to you, to me. I love you with an everlasting love. Right now I draw you to myself with unfailing kindness. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, for I, the Lord, have compassion on you. And in the synonym antonym meditation exercise, then we pick certain words and list out synonyms and anthems and then intersperse them within the words of the text. So I want to finish giving you my synonym antonym version of Jeremiah 31.3 and Isaiah 54.10. Just quiet your heart, open the ears of your heart, and listen to the Father's heart from his heart to yours. Beloved, I really do cherish you. I hold you dear in my heart. I love you with an everlasting love. And it's not a love that's momentary, fleeting, or temporary. It's undying. It's unending. It comes with ceaseless affection. It will never run out, never end, never stop. So fix your eyes, your heart, on me, on my character, my unfailing kindness, my gentleness and compassion, and let it draw you to me. My character, my heart, it's reliable, it's dependable, and inexhaustible. My love for you will never be shaken or disturbed. It is firm and as unwavering as a mountain. And my covenant to you, my vow to you, my commitment of peace between us will never be abolished. I will never do away with it. I will never discount it, renege on it, violate it, or forsake it. Though you may break it, or unfaithful to it at times, I, your Lord, am forever faithful to it, and I forgive you, because I have compassion 
on you because I really do cherish you. I really do hold you dear in my heart with undying, unending, ceaseless affection. God bless you all.